that to this. Uh, so we're doing a series called Status on Relationships, and this, um, we've been having, providing a way for you guys to ask questions for a Q&A panel at the end of the series. If you have a question you want addressed, fill out a card at the back on that little black table and put it in the basket. We're picking those up weekly so we can do a Q&A panel at the end of this series. So we have spent eight weeks talking about the male-female relationship, but today and next week, we're going to focus on a different relationship, and it's the relationship between Christianity and sexuality. And so now we're looking at that aspect of this series. So I would say the relationship between Christianity and sexuality is somewhat complicated, and it has been for a long time. So many today would say that Christians have been repressive concerning sexuality, and that's partly true. I'm going to walk you through um, the history of what some of these church fathers thought about sexuality as it relates to Christians. This is, this is crazy to think that there were people in the church that were teaching such things. Okay, so today, obviously, this is PG-13. We're going to have the same thing next week as well. And we'll kind of introduce how the next few weeks are going to go as we go through the series. But we're all adults in here, right? Oh, wait, we're not, actually, but that's okay. We can handle this. We'll be good. Um, so this guy, let me say this thing works today. All right, go back. There we go. So this guy, uh, his name is Clement. That's a great name. Um, this guy, this is, a, this is what he thought. He said, that sex was not for pleasure, but only for reproduction. And that's why he looks so sad in that picture. Um, and then this guy, these two guys, Tertullian and Ambrose, they're also old people, um, they both preferred extinction of the human race rather than for people to engage sexually. That's what these guys thought. Then there's a guy named Origen. He thought sex was totally evil. He taught the, the book of Song of Solomon wasn't really about a husband and wife, but taught it as this allegory of God and Israel. If you've ever read the book of Song of Solomon, that's just an awkward thing to think about if that's all between God and Israel. Um, but uh, so that's origin. That's what he thought about it. Then we have Gregory of Nyssa. This guy taught that Adam and Eve were created without sexual desire, and if the fall had not occurred, the human race would have reproduced in some other way. Not sure how that would have worked out, but that's what he thought. Then we have Jerome. This guy was crazy. Looks like a modern-day mobster or something. Like his black coat, he's like, probably killed a few people, you know. Um, this is what he did. If he experienced any kind of sexual desire, he would... He would throw himself into briar bushes, and he would create pain to distract himself. He would also beat his chest with a rock, all right? He looks like the kind of person that would do something like that. And then uh, anybody here from the house of Augustine in, at Providence, anybody want to admit that right now? No. Come on. No, no one's going to admit that. This is what Augustine thought about these things. Before becoming a Christian, he, of course, did sin sexually before he became a Christian. But after his conversion, he said that it's not that sex is wrong in marriage, but the passion associated with it was sinful. 
And so he would counsel even married couples to not engage. He was like, yeah, you shouldn't, that's just sinful, right? Even in a married couple. These are crazy ideas. Now, I saved the most awkward one for last. This guy is St. Francis. And he did something very strange, very strange. Um, this guy would take, take snow, and he would, like, form the shape of a woman in the snow, and then he would, he would like, cuddle with them to, like, quiet his, his, yes, this is what the guy did. It was weird, very, very strange. Now, here's my question. How did this become public knowledge? Because either he told someone that he did this, or someone saw him, both of which extremely awkward, right? It's just strange, very strange. And my other question is, how did he become a saint after doing these things, right? Like, oh, we're going to make this guy a saint. Like, it, that just doesn't work. I don't understand that. Now, something else very interesting is that um, during the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church started telling married couples, married couples, when they could and could not have sex. They forbid it on Thursdays because that was the day Jesus was arrested. So every Thursday they honored the day he was arrested. On Fridays, the day of his death, on Saturdays to honor the Virgin Mary, and even on Sundays to honor the dead saints. So if you're doing the math, I'm sure a lot of people called in sick Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, right? And this raises all kinds of questions for me, like how the Catholic Church tried to enforce these things. I would say it just sounds like they were created by a, a bitter pope who was sworn to singleness for his entire life, right? That's what my opinion is on that. And so it is, it is somewhat okay to criticize the church throughout history because it's somewhat deserved because the church had some messed up views on sexuality throughout history, right? But there's also another side to the story. Whenever you hear the words sexual revolution, most of us think, about how during the 60s and the 70s, the world began throwing off the old repressive system that the church had imposed over the centuries. And everyone, because of what happened in the 60s and 70s, everyone embraced this like new, healthier expression of sexuality, as they called it. And then now, 50 years later, that is still the narrative. And you hear the, the media talk about what happened during the sexual revolution back in the 60s and 70s. But there's another side of the story that never really gets told that much. I'll describe for you how sexuality was viewed in the Roman Empire before Christianity truly influenced it. So this is sexuality in the Roman Empire. You see, there was a double standard for men and women back in that day. Women were expected to never have sex before marriage, but then once married, of course, only with their husband. But for the men in the Roman Empire, they could pretty much do whatever they wanted because they were the ones that wrote the rules. So they were allowed to do whatever they wanted, even though the women obviously could not in their culture. The second aspect of this in the Roman Empire is that sexual morality was determined by the powerful, those people that were in charge, the ones that made the rules. And there was one thing, though. if In the Roman Empire, if you were a, a man of nobility then, yeah, if you're a man of nobility, you, you could still engage with prostitutes or engage with slaves. It didn't really matter as far as that goes. But when it comes to someone else's wife, 
Like, you can't touch someone else's wife if they're also a person of nobility because that would be a slap in his face as he was also a man of power and nobility, as they would say. So you can see how this was a really messed up way for those in that time to view sexuality. Now listen, every culture has a sexual morality. And that morality is grounded in what they believe sex is for, meaning its purpose. So in Rome, sex was for personal pleasure and for the enjoyment of people that had a high social status. That was how they viewed it. And this is why they thought it was perfectly fine for them to engage with it in this way. Now, Christianity began to change this. And Christianity began what is called the first sexual revolution. You may not understand this actually took place in history. And because of Christianity's influence in Rome, um, sexuality began to be judged in light of God's created order. And so here's what I want you to hear today. If, if marriage gives us a picture of Christ's relationship to the church, then our sexuality tells us something about God and his relationship to the church as well. And that's what I want you to hear this morning as we talk about this this week and also next week. Now, for Christians, the rightness or wrongness of sexual acts was no longer determined by the double standard between men and women or by the powerful, but was determined by covenant love. And this began to change how people viewed sexuality in the empire. And so the Christians began the first sexual revolution. And most people don't really want to talk about that. So here's a quote that I read from Gospel Coalition. And uh, they say, Christianity reimagines sex as no longer a mere appetite that we could barely control, but as a joyous, even sacred expression that reflects the way God is saving the world. And there were immediate results that took place in the Roman Empire. So Christianity began to see the need to guard the vulnerable from exploitation. And so people stopped being abused and exploited in this way because of the influence of Christians in that part of the world. And men no longer had the right to abuse people sexually. This was the first sexual revolution in our world. Now let's talk about today. In late 2017, there were accusations in Hollywood about this man, Harvey Weinstein, or Weinstein, however you pronounce his name. And he was a movie producer, and women were accusing him of predatory behavior. On October 15th, actress Alyssa Milano tweeted the following, if you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write Me Too as a reply to this tweet. And the hashtag Me Too went viral. By the end of the day, that phrase was used over 200,000 times and the movement just took off. And stories of harassment and abuse spread through politics, media, religious circles, and of course it continues today. But I ask you this question, where did our culture get the idea that people in power don't have a right to abuse and exploit people? Well, they got the idea from Christianity, and they don't even realize it. So the thing that you see happening in our culture today, where people are rightly standing up and saying, this is wrong, abuse, exploitation is wrong. Well, that wasn't an accepted truth back in the time of the Roman Empire. That was just, people just did that. That's just how they lived it out. But it's seen as wrong now because of the influence of Christianity on the culture. This is why the culture thinks it's wrong. 
but they don't realize that idea came from the Christian faith. That you don't treat people like this, especially as it relates to sexuality. There are some people today who wish we could return to the good old days of Rome where people could be sexual with, with whoever, whenever, and however they wanted, but they forget what came with that, which is abuse and exploitation and men oppressing women. And you see, we, we can't have that both ways, right? We can't, we, we can't go back to those days and say, let's live in freedom sexually without also adopting the things that Rome was bringing into that. You see, our culture sends mixed messages about sexuality. It'll say that, you know, sex is no big deal if it's between two consenting adults. But the moment that someone is abused or exploited, suddenly sex is a big deal. I recently read an interview of two Hollywood figures who had to film an intimate scene while making a PG-13 movie. And in an interview, the woman said that she would get drunk beforehand to dull her discomfort. And my question is, why does the interviewer ask about their comfort level when filming this particular scene, but not the other scenes? Because I think there's something in us, everyone knows there's something important, vulnerable, and powerful happening when two people are intimate in this way. You see, we don't get to pick and choose when sex is a big deal. It's always a big deal. And we're going to spend today looking at why that is. So if you go in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, look at a couple of verses there today. In Romans 1, <clears throat> Paul writes about how all people can know something about God by simply looking at creation. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, it says this. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now this verse is not a statement directly about sexuality, but I want you to see the bigger point, that God's eternal power and his divine nature are clearly seen in what God has made. The visible always reveals something of the invisible. So all of creation, what we see and experience, reveals something about God's nature. If you think about an, a painting that an artist has, has put together, that painting often shows something about the artist. The same is true of creation, that, that creation shows something about the creator. And we see this here in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. You might say it like this, everything created tells us something about the creator. And yes, I think this is true even of our sexuality. Even sex tells us something about who God is. So what does it say about God? I think it tells us that God is good, that he gives us good gifts, that he blesses us in this way. You know, there are some Christians, I think, that find this difficult to believe. They find it difficult to, to see something about God as it relates to our sexuality. But I think Romans 1.20 is clear that everything created shows us something about who God is. So why wouldn't that be true of the thing that everyone's ashamed to talk about, that God created, right? So we have said throughout the series that marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. And if, 
if marriage points beyond itself, then it would make sense that sex also, I think, points beyond itself. But here's what you and I tend to do. Instead of allowing creation to point us to the creator, we allow the creation to replace the creator. So next week we're going to look at some ways that we do that and how sexuality gets broken, but today we're going to look at its purpose. So what is the purpose of sex? So Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 This is that creation. It says, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is God's command to Adam and Eve. And then it says, So Genesis says that God makes mankind in his image and he wants his image to fill the earth. This is why he commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. And his first commandment to this first couple is, is for them to be fruitful and multiply, and that is a command that I don't hear anybody complaining about, right? Right? And uh, so, so being fruitful and multiplying is, is directly connected to having dominion over the earth and what God has commissioned them to do as the first couple. So the first, most obvious reason, purpose of sex, of course, is procreation. It's his most obvious purpose. We still need to talk about it for a few moments. Now, again, this is difficult for some Christians to grasp, but, but this, this was God's idea. It's hard for us to understand that sometimes. The way that some Christians think of sexuality, it's as if they believe that God made male and female, and on the sixth day, while, on the sixth day but while he's resting on the seventh, like Satan went and created this other thing. That's how a lot of Christians, I think, tend to think about this sort of thing. But, of course, this was God's design, and it's his good design. So procreation is number one. The second purpose is restoration. And there's a lot of things we can talk about under this heading of restoration. You see, all through the Old Testament, we see God commanding the Israelites to perform these covenant renewal ceremonies. So whenever they're about to march into into the promised land, he has them perform these covenant renewal ceremonies throughout their history as a nation. And it's to remind them who God is, but also who they are as a people. And this was also to rekindle their heart for God, knowing that God has their best interest in mind. So the person to whom you're married is your covenant partner. That's what marriage is. But over time, you start to forget this about your relationship with them. So I believe that God designed sex to remind you of the covenant that you're one with this person. And so he designs it to rekindle their heart toward the other person. So sex within marriage acts as this covenant renewal ceremony that God designed. I think it's to renew and to restore the covenant between husband and wife. It is God's way for two people to say, I belong completely to you. So sex, obviously, it creates oneness. And we see this in Genesis chapter 2, as you read on, 23 to 25, where it says, then the, then the, then the man said, this, is, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and we're not ashamed. So I think, I believe that God, he gives sex as a gift 
to restore and renew the covenant to create oneness in the relationship. And if sex creates oneness in a relationship that's a married relationship, then it also does the same thing when it's done sinfully. So whenever we engage sexually, we enter into a deeper unity that's not only spiritual and emotional, but also neurochemical. It actually affects your brain in an actual chemical way. There's a chemical called oxytocin, which is released in your body, released in the brain, and this generates bonding between two people. And this is a gift from God. God's given us that as a gift. And it helps a couple build trust, which is essential for any relationship. But this same reaction happens even in the early stages of anything happening in a physical relationship. The same thing happens within you and the other person. I can tell you right now that there are people that um, in high school that, that I crossed lines with. And I will tell you that those breakups became so difficult because it was like you're getting off of a drug. It's like, like a chemical drug, right, an addiction. And, but the ones that I never crossed those lines with, there was like this respect that we had for one another. And even when the relationship ended, it's like we could still see one another and be friends and be okay because those lines had not been crossed. But I will tell you that the ones where the lines had been crossed, the breakup was that much more difficult because it was like your body's literally getting off of a drug. And this is the effect that it can have on us. So in the, in, the, in the context of marriage, I think God's given us this as a way to restore and to renew the covenant that is between a husband and wife. And it's so important that it's reserved for that. And then thirdly, there's sanctification. This is a, a fancy word for spiritual growth. Now you might ask, how does sex grow someone spiritually? We generally think of, of it as keeping us from growth, Right? But here's how. In a marriage, if there is anger and bitterness and resentment in the relationship, it's going to affect the sexual relationship, right? Sex has a way of revealing problems in the marriage that would never be dealt with if sex did not exist. I love what Tim Keller says in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He says, the Bible gives us a high view of sex. It is a sign and seal of our oneness with each other and with God. We should not then be surprised to discover that you may find problems showing up in bed, which if it wasn't for sex, you might never have seen. So what is he saying? Well, listen, it's difficult to pursue someone in this way if you're angry all the time, bitter all the time at them. And so it's like God's given you this thing as a gift, but because you have that as a gift in your marriage relationship, it's going to reveal a lot of sin in us, and it has a way of doing that in these relationships. Because now you can't, you can't just sweep problems under the rug. You've got to deal with issues and problems, right? Sex forces you to deal with problems in the relationship, and if you don't, you're not going to have a healthy marriage. So I want you to hear those three things, the, the three ideas. There is uh, procreation, restoration, and also sanctification. Now I want to ask this next question, because it flows out of the first question, which is what's the purpose of sex? So why is sex reserved for marriage. I want to read to you real quick. I don't have this on the screen, but I have 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. 
Because I realized in prepping this message that I did not actually have a verse that talked about, like, saving sex for marriage and those kind of things. And I just thought, um, you need to hear an actual verse and not just me talking about it. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. It says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually, okay, let me pick up there. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The word for sexual immorality in that verse is the Greek word pornea, which is like a junk drawer word for anything that's sexual outside of marriage. It's also where we get the word pornography from today, obviously. So um, we'll, we'll spend more time on that verse next week. But what I want you to hear this morning is that sex is the only thing where before, God, before, mar- before marriage, God says no, but within marriage, God says yes. And there's nothing else I can think of that's like that right? I mean, murder's not like that. It's kind of always wrong, right? No matter what. But it's weird because you cross this threshold from like, before you're married, it's like, no, no, no. Once you're married, God says, yes, of course. His blessing is on that. There's nothing else that's like that in this life. And so it can be confusing to you as a single person because you're like, well, what's the big deal, right? That's how we tend to think about it. But it's so important that you understand this idea that it is reserved for a covenant partnership in marriage between a man and a woman. And that's the only place in which God has blessed it, and that's what he's designed it for. I know it seems to you that God is holding out on you, that he just wants to kill all your fun. That's not true. Because if God designed sex to renew and to restore the covenant made between husband and wife, Sex can't reinforce the covenant if there is no covenant. Now, it might seem that all the people out there in the world that are engaging sexually outside of marriage, it might seem that, you know, they're the ones that have it good, and us, we're these poor, oppressed Christians that are saving sex for marriage, that, you know, that we're the ones missing out. But here's the reality. They're the ones missing out. The opposite is true, because those who have separated sex from this covenant relationship, they're the ones actually missing out. I love, again, what Tim Keller says in his book on marriage. He says, the Bible does not counsel sexual abstinence before marriage because it has such a low view of sex, but because it has such a lofty one. Listen, you have to get this thought out of your minds that God is holding out on you. God is not holding out on you. He's trying to protect you. He's trying to guard you. God knows just what he's doing. There's a book I've been reading by a guy named Sam Alberry, and I love this picture he gives. He says, if you can imagine for a moment that you walk into a bank and you see two people at the, the desk that are both making a transaction, And from the external perspective, both look the exact same. There are two people there at the bank making a withdrawal out of the bank with with cash. And they both have like a big duffel bag. And there's someone putting big stacks of bills in the duffel bag. 
Now, one person happens to be a very wealthy man who just has a lot of money in the bank, and he says, hey, I want to withdraw $10,000. Can I have $10,000? And he's making a legal withdrawal from the bank, and he's putting it in a duffel bag, which I guess might seem shady, but he has a plan for it, I guess. I don't know. And then the other person is doing the exact same thing from an external perspective, but this person walked in and said, hey, I've got a gun in my coat. Give me $10,000 and put it in this duffel bag. All right? Now, both people, from the external perspective, are doing the exact same thing. One is doing it legally. One is doing it illegally. And there'd be great consequences for the person that's doing it illegal, obviously. That person is taking something that is not rightfully theirs. And he says, that's what's happening when you see someone that you know is engaging in sex outside of marriage versus someone who is engaging in sex inside marriage. From an external, external perspective, both, it seems, are the exact same, but they are very, very, very different. One person is taking something that is not rightfully theirs. That person doesn't belong to you. Not in a covenant relationship. There's no marriage. And so it's vastly different. Whenever we do anything that's sexual outside marriage, we are saying to that person, I only want part of you. I don't want all of you. I just want part. So God says, don't become one with someone physically unless you're willing to become one with them in every way, emotionally and spiritually and legally. C.S. Lewis once said, that sex without marriage is like tasting food without swallowing and digesting. So imagine doing that today at lunch. Like you go to lunch, you're hungry, you're starving, and you just take a bite of your sandwich, chew it up, and then you just spit it out in a cup. Like that would be ridiculous. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't get the full effect of food and what it's meant to be for your body. That would not be satisfying. But he says that's what someone does whenever they engage sexually outside of marriage, they are taking it out of the context it's meant to be experienced in, and they're only getting a small part of that, not its full effect, what it's meant to be in a marriage relationship. In 2001, there was a movie that came out called Vanilla Sky, and Tom Cruise's character has this one-night stand with a woman played by Cameron Diaz, and later in the movie, she challenges him on this, and she says... Don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? And I think she's right. I love when unbelievers say things that line up with the Bible. In other words, we can't separate the physical from the spiritual. To engage sexually without acknowledging this deeper union happening is a form of deception. So again, uh, Tim Keller, one of his books, he says, sex is God's appointed way for two people to say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. We must not use sex to say anything else. And so this is God's purpose for our sexuality. Next week we'll talk about how because of sin this all gets broken and messed up. So I'm going to go ahead and dismiss you.